This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello and uh, welcome again to another in the series Sam Talks Technology. And I'm super excited to tell you I've got Ben Hammersley joining me today. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hey, Sam. I'm, I'm very croaky today, so I apologise for sounding like uh, a blues singer. That's okay. But now, um, Ben, you're in New York today, but you are a jet-setting uh, futurologist, uh, as I'd like to describe you. Um, yeah. Where have you been recently? Uh, well, in the past few weeks, I've been in London, uh, Lisbon, Bangkok, uh, Wuhan in China, uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, here in New York, uh, all over the place. And then <laughs> Just basically all week, over. Yeah, and then next week, I'm in uh, London again, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I'm just this morning arranged two trips to Moscow and Frankfurt and Berlin and Stockholm and Copenhagen. So yeah, I work all, all the way around the world. Brilliant. It's a, it's a insane. Um, now you, you are a futurologist, um, but in your previous incarnation, let's say the last decade, um, you were a journalist. Uh, you have famously been accredited with coming up with the word podcast um, I think the story behind that is fascinatingly funny. You just had to fluff out uh, an article. I think it was what you. That's had right. To do. That's right. I, mean, I, I was a, I was a sentence short on an article, and I just had to make something up. Yeah, it's not the most uh, glorious uh, origin story for a word, but uh, you're close to deadline, and you're, you're a few words short on the page design, and you just have to write something extra. And I just had to make something up. So yeah, 2004. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, You've worked as uh, at Wired, you've worked at the BBC, and you've worked at the Guardian and Times. So as a journalist, obviously, that was your, your chosen background. Um, but what do you do? I mean, fundamentally, what does a futurologist do? What do you do today? So today, I, I work uh, with uh, my private clients. They're usually corporations. There are some people and uh, a couple of governments as well. And really what I try and do is help them come to terms with the changes in the world. So it's not so much about predicting the future like some sort of psychic or something like that. Instead, it's really helping relieve the tension within senior executives and senior governmental figures, senior military, rich, rich client, private clients between their mental model of how the world works and uh, how the world actually works. Because once you get a bit above a certain level in management or government, your job isn't to think about today, your job is to think about tomorrow. Your job is to plan how the organization is going to move forward. I mean, the day-to-day -day operations are being handled by somebody else. And that planning can be a real problem if your understanding of the universe is uh, wrong in some way uh, or, or isn't actually representative of the way the, the, the world works. And so I help people get on, to, get on top of exactly the present day and then I try to give them uh, cognitive tools and techniques that they can use to think clearly about the next few years and how, how the present day may evolve within their industry or within their country or within their theatre of operations or, or, or whatever it is. And, and how do you sort of 
put the pieces together? Are you, are you constantly reading? Are you constantly watching? What, what is it yes, that li- yes. links it all together for you? How do you come up with these moments where you go, oh, that's where it's going? So it's, it's a, a combination of, of a few things. It's a combination of continual research into, into flows around the world. So a continual research into how the world is, is operating, how things are moving around trends, goods, services, those sorts of things in the present day. A continual reassessment of, of the models that we have to describe the world. Uh, so for example, let me give you an example. Yeah, so, so you, you have a whole generation of people, for example, who still believe the world is East versus West. For example, it's you know, capitalism versus socialism. Um, that sort of, uh, that sort of, situation that's representative of how the world was in say 1975 and they in their heads even though they might on surface understand that's no longer the case so the union is no longer there etc etc and all of the decisions they make about the world are based on that framework that they have in their head and so it's so my day-to-day work is is looking for those frameworks that people have and then working out where they're wrong or and developing my own frameworks to describe the way that a particular area of the world or a particular industry or a particular uh network of trends the way that it's currently uh working and that can be anything from geopolitics a sort of country versus country to the way that the fashion world works or the way the publishing works or the way that um media uh, is generated or, or or anything like that depending on who my who my client is so that's that's one set of things the, the sort of network of flows and then the second set of things is helping people understand what capabilities there are in the world today because that's a very similar thing that when you get above a certain age people tend to not not look for new tools they they tend to have settled on a way of doing things which is the way that they learned in the earlier parts of their careers and i'm continually helping people see that there are new ways of doing things and new things you can do in general um, which other people are taking advantage of and creating the world with those new tools you can't think clearly about the world today without understanding the tools that people are using to shape the world today so it's a a combination of looking at the capabilities and the new capabilities and looking at the flows across the society and the flows from country to country. And when you take those two things together, it gives you a much wider and richer model of the world um, than most people have because the models that they have are ones that they developed much earlier in their lives and they haven't revised them. Yeah, I can, I can see how people become... Uh, myopic with their thinking and then take that and say that's the way it will be or should be or will always be um that's, that's right that's right yeah it's always well, perfectly understandable as well i mean i think it's perfectly it's perfectly fine that people do that because it's it's extremely hard work to learn new skills and it's extremely hard work to continually reassess how you think the world operates and most people don't have to do that and they don't i mean they, they don't like to do it and they don't have to do it uh, but if you want to think about how the world is evolving and if you want to 
prepare yourself or prepare your organization for the world in say five or ten years time then it becomes necessary and that, at that point it becomes very difficult and isn't that people like me yeah exactly isn't that though the innovators dilemma you know most companies let's say kodak intel various others who've mm-hmm. who've watched the business because they haven't had to look outside the box or haven't looked forward I mean, Kodak's the obvious famous example, you know, they invented the digital camera and then didn't do anything with the digital camera, um, which... That's right. You know. That's right. So there is, so there is that, uh, as an organization or a company level, that, that, like you say, Kodak invented the digital camera, but then because their main business, in fact, their entirety of their business was in chemical film and, and you know, photographic chemicals and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and, and also because at the time, the digital camera was terrible and the Kodachrome film was amazing. Um, it was, it's very rational for the Kodak um, board to say digital, cam, digital photography isn't going to go anywhere and we should just continue with, our, with what we're doing. Um, the problem that the people find is that just because they decided that a particular thing isn't going to go anywhere doesn't mean that the rest of the world has decided the same thing and the rest of the world may continue on to, to develop that technology or to develop new social practices and new cultural practices around the new technology, which may end up being um, more popular and more successful than the, than the original one. And so basically just, just like stuff happens, right? Events happen that, that change the, that change your playing field. And if you're not aware of the possibilities of those changes, then there's no way you can prepare for them. Even if your preparation consists of taking the viewpoint that those changes will never happen in the first place. Right. So um, looking at some of the other companies that are doing it, I guess Uber is another example with taxis and travel. Or, mm-hmm. or, and I guess Airbnb is another famous example. What other companies are you seeing currently that you'd point people to and say, look, that's the company that's changing the status quo. That's the company that's, you know, I've gone around the world and I've seen lots of things. And this is one of those companies that is the next Airbnb, the next Uber, the next digital camera. What are you seeing right now that might fit that? So, so yeah, sure. So it's, it depends on um, the area that my client is in. But in general, I don't point to companies, other companies. So I, I don't point to Uber or Airbnb or, or any of those you know, notable examples of, of innovative business models because, it's, because it, it, makes the, or it makes the conversation about um, whether or not Uber is any good or whether or not Airbnb is any good. Instead, what I try to do is point to the things that make Uber or Airbnb possible. I point to the capabilities that make those things possible and then and show the possibilities of, of my clients using those new capabilities or using the second order derivatives of those, of those new capabilities. So if you think about Uber, for example, Uber and then all of the ride, ride hailing, um, you know, ride sharing companies their technology, the technology that makes it possible is the smartphone and GPS and mobile payments and that whole stack of things that, that go into the app, um, both the rider's app and also the driver's app that makes Uber possible. 
Right. You, you can get you can get very excited about that. There's a famous slide that everybody uses, which is you know the biggest taxi, taxi company in the world doesn't own any taxis, and the biggest hotel company in the world doesn't own any hotels, and, and so on. there's that that whole sort of thing about Uber and Airbnb. But that's in many ways sort of missing the point in that Uber and Airbnb are not it's not it, the point isn't to talk about them as being taxi companies or as being hotel companies because all that is doing is reframing the new situation in terms of the old the, the more fruitful and useful way i think of talking about those companies is to say these are the first of a generation of corporations whose business models are going to be based around a completely different playing field the playing field of everybody every single customer has a device in their pocket which has these particular capabilities and therefore if your business is to serve the particular needs of that audience you're not serving the particular needs of that audience as if they were living in the 1980s you're serving the particular needs of that audience as if they're in 2025 what capabilities will those will that audience have in 2025 with which they will be able to summon your services you see what i'm saying it's a, yeah it's not about it's not about uber being a new taxi firm it's about the fact that uber is a company which recognized the new playing field and it's the new playing field that's interesting rather than uber because to take uber as a good example uber is a terrible business it's a really interesting technology and it's a real, and a real interesting social practice and all of that but as a business it loses enormous amounts of money every year the same with we work famously i mean we work is again a really interesting set of capabilities and social movements and cultural events which have come together to create a successful to create a to create a, a thing but as a business rework is is disastrous i mean it's losing yeah. billions of dollars every quarter so it's not a good business but as an example of the way the world is changing in terms of um both technology use, but also in terms of the way that companies are, the way that individuals are, in terms and the way that the sort of things they want for office space, all of that sort of thing. In terms of social practice, it's a very good example of the way the world has changed quite radically. And so, so we, so as a futurist, it's the important thing isn't to go WeWork or Uber or Airbnb or you know any of the famous companies like that are special and let's talk about those companies it's more thinking why is it that what is it that's making these companies possible regardless of the fact that uber is a terrible business we work as a terrible business and airbnb isn't a particularly good business either in terms of the fact that they all lose enormous amounts of cash and so yeah i think all of them though found a pain point and and, and we're trying to fix a pain point that you know we all know that getting out of an airport especially in new york yellow cabs are awful or, or let's say um, you know finding a hotel that wasn't overpriced or fully booked or you know just wasn't stuck in the middle of some awful godforsaken brand new resort rather than anywhere nice um right i guess that was the other pain point that people looked at but um, I, I understand and I agree fully that, you know, they, they've taken the technology stack as well that was underlying it, you know, the ability to do the booking online, to do the, uh, to find your geolocation instantly, you know, with an app. So I don't have to hail it down. Now, 
I agree. Um, before we get off, because I've got a billion mm-hmm. questions, I, when, when sure. you've got a futurologist on your radio show, you, you, you certainly have a load of questions to ask him. And before I go off on those, I just wanted to, <laughs> can't, I've got one thing. I mean, you, as I said, you're famous for, for coming up with the word podcast. Um, and as a podcaster and radiologist, um, you famously wrote two books. One was about RSS, one was about RSS and Atom. Now, mm. strangely, that's all come back into vogue because of podcasting. Um, mm. When you look at uh, how podcasts are disseminated right now, it's still using a good old 10-year-old technology, RSS. And 20, it's still 20 year old, yeah. 20 yeah. oh my word okay yeah. um yes came back from the heady days of netscape and dave weiner uh, that's right pick, pick, pick your brew as they say um yes indeed uh but having written those books and and looked at things like opml and and there's a lovely technology uh, that google came up with uh, the original name of it was called pub sub hubbub uh which yes. was subsequently renamed WebSub. Um, which was mm. a basic way of pinging uh, a server to say, or the server pinging the client saying, yes, something's been updated, now come and collect, rather than the client constantly pinging. What, in your mind, because you are technical and having written two mm. books on the subject, where do you see podcasting going? I mean, is there anything <laughs> that, that you saw coming down the track 20 years ago that we should be dusting off now and say, oh, yeah, of course, that's the technology that we're missing? So I think um, that's a very good question. I think it's the, the biggest problem that we have with podcasting right now. And podcasting as a, as a cultural medium is incredibly successful, I think, um, and incredibly important. I think the, the technical problem that we have with podcasting is, is what's called the discovery problem, which is how do you find the good ones? Mm-hmm. And yeah. or or at least and and of course the definition of good in that respect is is a, is an individual definition, right? I mean, what might be good for you is going to be different to what's good for me is going to be different for everybody in the world because everybody has different interests. Uh, never mind aesthetic judgments about radio production, and and so identifying what is good rather than just tuning into your favorite station and letting it play is the fundamental problem with all sorts of on-demand media and whether that's podcasting or it's you know netflix and there are some technologies which which have been around um and available both in the in the rss standard which like you say is used to disseminate podcasts but but also in the wider in sort of the wider um, web feed world which would enable people to include with their, in their podcast feed a, a whole lot of other information, which would, if they were to do so, and if everybody was to do so, would allow for discovery engines and indexes and curation tools to, be, to work to help people start to address that discovery problem. That you, it would be possible, it would be trivial in fact, for people to add in a lot more information about about their podcasts, about the individual episodes, about the about the streams, about the shows, in terms of subjects that are covered, who's in it, all of that sort of thing, and and that's a very minor part of what we used to call the semantic web. But it's but because the semantic web didn't really come to come to work because the web itself 
was certainly at the time was was a huge free for all in terms of the data standards. Uh, they really weren't any data standards, but with but with podcasting, you have to have the data standard correct, otherwise, or your or most podcast readers won't be able to understand the feed. And so, because you have to make the feed correctly, then anybody who's publishing a podcast is using a tool to do so, and that tool could quite easily be upgraded to include a whole load of other stuff in terms of information about the program. So I think. If I, if I was emperor of the universe, I would just make people add in a lot more metadata about their podcasts, and then that would enable for lots more indexing. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping Google, with its uh, recent announcement saying that they're going to uh, uh, start to index podcasts into the main Google search results, um, will make people do what you said, you know, add more metadata. Right, horrible word, but podcast SEO will start to exist you know, where right, people... and that's a real. I think that's a real problem. Um, of course, once you start to have that sort of um, reward mechanism of discovery, it will be gained, and like you say, there will be sort of podcast SEO, and so there'll have to be countermeasures to that, which which is a sort of a sad uh, situation, and it's again really incumbent on on the major hubs for podcast distribution, which would be Apple, I guess. Uh, and maybe yeah. Android, maybe the Android to a podcast store, but, but certainly iTunes, Apple podcast app um, and the Apple um, index. And I think for the sake of not poisoning the well, it would be very good if Apple started to be quite strict with that sort of thing. I mean, Google have been working on the discovery problem with podcasts for about three years. I mean, they bought, it was a British company that was, was working on it that Google bought. And we're continually talking about bringing their product out publicly, but, it, but I don't think it ever has. Um, I think what they're doing, what Google are doing, is they're pointing, um, pointing speech recognition at it and indexing people speaking, yeah. uh, which is both good and bad. Um, in terms of transcripts are very, very useful for accessibility. And I think all, all podcasts um, with any form of budget should also publish transcripts. But but it's not, it's not the same thing in terms of a, just because somebody, just because somebody has the right words in their transcript doesn't mean the podcast is any good. It's much more of an aesthetic experience as well, that you, that you have a really good editing and really good mixing and things like that. And so it's, again, it's, it's difficult to, there has to be some form of human judgment in there as, as well. I mean, the whole thing is very, very difficult indeed um, to do a universal service, but but to make it easier for humans to do human curation, I think would be would be very very powerful. Yeah, I mean this this um, <clears throat> recording is on Zoom, but it's being auto transcribed by Otter AI, so it's linked to Zoom, so the whole show will be transcribed automatically. So I'll have a transcription at the end. The problem I've found is that the transcription quality is probably. 85 maybe 90 percent good and, and that in itself then presents a little problem do you do you post the transcription you know with the podcast um or do you go oh i'll go and spend the next hour you know updating the the key sections of that transcription so that sure. the words are right and then you go well that's two hours of my life to do so it, it and then you wonder whether there's any value benefit in it in the sense <clears throat> if no one's actually indexing that transcription, then you've just spent a lot of time trying, you know, 
editing a transcription. So I don't know. I think you're right. Discovery is the biggest problem. I just wondered whether in anything you wrote or anything you remembered, uh, I, I, sure. I will grant you it was 20 years ago or not when you wrote the books, obviously. But, um, but you know, we, we're all sitting here going, oh, yeah, that's what we should do. I remember there was a whole argument about namespaces that came up. Um, right. You know, so that's part of the that's part of the wider um, semantic web argument. So so namespaces was a way of a way of allowing people to create their own um, semantic web vocabularies to describe things. It's a very elegant way of of separating um, separating uh, the same labels. So if I say, um, that was a good example, oh, length, for example, if you use the word length in terms of a podcast, it'll be a time value. If you use the, use the word length to, to describe a swimming pool, then it'll be a distance value. Right. So you need to have a namespace which says podcast length. You know, length, length in terms of podcasts is, is a duration. Length in terms of swimming pools is a, is a, is a distance. And so one is in the namespace of podcasts and one is in the namespace of swimming pools because the same technology that you're using to describe podcasts you could also use to describe um you know buildings and and so it's just a way of making sure that you don't run out of words or you don't have somebody choose a word which means a lot of which means different things in other contexts and then having those two areas of expertise like argue about who gets first dibs on the word length so yeah just, exactly uh, it's yeah. just a way of dis disambiguating that but all of that is a very um you end up and this was the problem 20 years ago when this first was was being debated that all of that metadata and all of those standards become very complex and slightly obscure very quickly because you end up with this slightly maddening project to describe the whole universe in terms of um, in terms of linked data and it's very hard to do with a lot of the human experience this is a, a, a problem that we're now seeing with artificial intelligences and it's basically the same thing which is there's a whole load of stuff which you can do, which can be described in numbers or can be described in, in flat data. Uh, and that's great. And AI can do a lot, a lot of stuff with, with those particular things, you know, accounting or something like that, which is all numbers based. But once you're part of the, once you're talking about part of the human experience, which can't be described fully with numbers or with words, then both semantic web technology and also artificial intelligence starts to fail and so so for example you can't ha you could have an ai which could correct your spelling or you could have an ai that could correct your um you know that could uh, write a piece of journalism or, or or write a piece of prose which would which would be perfectly grammatical and make sense but you couldn't have an ai that would teach you how to dance or right. You certainly, you certainly couldn't have an AI that could, that could teach you how to um, be a good friend, you know, or something like that, which is, which are things that cannot be described in, in raw data. They're a much more experiential thing. Um, and so semantic, you know, all those, that's why the indexing problem is so hard is that how do you, how, how do you describe the aesthetic quality of listening to an episode of, 99% Invisible or Radio Lab or something like that. One of those shows which has a very particular 
you know, production aesthetic? Or how do you just, you know, how do you do that in numbers? Do you do it in adjectives? Like, how, how do you do that? Um, you can't. Like, how, how would you describe in a way that Google would understand the quality of your favorite TV show in a way that would make it unique? Yeah. Um, it's, it's impossible. Whereas, whereas, whereas when you're talking about your favorite TV show with another human, you can do it through not just the words you use, but your body language and, and, you're in, and your tone of voice and the light that sparkles in your eyes when you talk about your favorite episode and all those sorts of things, which can't be quantified, but can be qualitative, qualitatively understood by another human. And so this is, this is sort of a, it's actually an interesting segue into, into things like AI and all of the conversations we have about those today is that it's all about the human condition rather than about stuff that can be described with numbers. Yeah, I mean, we talk about AI and the bias that's put into AI, but that's just because it's human curated and, and created, I, I guess. We are putting our biases, rightly or wrongly, into the coding that AI is delivering. That's exactly right. So, so you have real two problems. One is that if you're using training data to train your AI that's based on human behavior, then that training data will have human biases built into it. Um, because it's based on human behavior and human, humans behave in a biased way. But the other way is that, that a, lot of, a lot of the training data can be describing a bit of human, human behavior which cannot really be fully encompassed with data. Um, and, so we, and so just by the very dint of the fact that you're turning it into numbers introduces uh, a bias or at least a lack of resolution which which gives you very poor results going forward yeah. and, and there's some very interesting research about this and where it shows for example that any the, there are lots of ai models today which are used in human resources and, and in, used to recruit people and used in education as well to sort of predict how suitable somebody is for a job or predict how well somebody will do on a particular university course or something like that and you can give them as many variables as you like, but it, it turns out that the data is, is almost always wrong. And the result is almost, is, is actually, in most cases, from the AI, the result is worse than it is just by taking somebody's like age and social status or something like that, or even just worse than random chance. Um, once you get into human behavior rather than, rather than predictable physical systems once you get into human behavior then ai is just just terrible yeah i think we've got a long way to go with ai I, I, everything i read today is it, it's been got a sprinkling of ai uh, it's, it's a bit like uh, vc bingo you know have you got right, blockchain right. have you got ai have you got um an electric battery are you sustainably green are you whatever <laughs> sure, um sure. So, so i'm sure you know we, we are at narrow AI at the moment, which is, is wonderful. And it is enhancing the way that data is being, you know, manipulated. But I think, it, as you say, it's very, um, very limiting now because of the data sets. I mean, famously, most data sets don't have a lot of data about black people. Um, right. I think, right. you know, so I right. think there's a couple of famous examples where Google... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Google couldn't quite work out whether it was a black man or a gorilla. Um, I think right. there's there's a couple of cases where um, 
recently. There's a skin an analysis, and of course, they had no uh, dark people's skin analysis in the data set originally, so sure, didn't sure. come out with it. So, uh, yeah, we have got a long way to go, but it's great. Um, look, I, I want to get we, I want to get on to that. Um, before we do, I just want to touch on a, a, a one thing. How did you get into all this? Now, you and I have got a, um, a very odd upbringing in the sense we both went to the same school, many, many, right. uh, probably a decade apart, I, I think I've worked out. Um, yeah. We went to Loughborough Grammar School together. So did you grow up in Leicestershire? Was Leicestershire home for you for, with mum and dad and everything? Or, yeah, or what well, was yeah, it was. Yeah, I grew up just outside Leicester and then we get the bus into school, you know, 45 minutes each way or whatever. And yeah, the, I mean, at the time, that was a very, um, I, it was a very sort of, in retrospect, it's a very weird place in, in that it was one of those, you know, one of those 500 years old now, 515 or something, you know, 20 yeah. years old. Older than, um, older than America. Older than America, actually. And when I tell, it's precisely when I tell people, you know, hear that, they, their eyes bulge out their sockets it's very interesting <laughs> but the i think that that school at the time was doing what an awful lot of british institutions do to this day which is they were sort of cosplaying the empire in in a very curious way in that they were set up if not consciously but certainly with a background of teaching subjects and teaching in the both the subjects and the way that they were taught, um, in a way that was that hasn't re hadn't really changed since the since the Victorian era, um, yeah. in a, that was designed very specifically at the time for training, you know, young men to go and like rule the empire, right? Whether it was in the civil service or or in the army, and certainly. Um, you know, certainly in the year I left, I think of 110 or so boys, I, you know, probably a good 20 went into the services and a good 40 went to Oxford, right? In, in that sort of continuation of that. Um, yeah, well, I, I was the army one who went to the army. So I right, went to exactly. Sandhurst and, and did that. And you, where did you go? You probably went to Oxford, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, I didn't. In fact, I was the only one in my year who didn't go to university <laughs> straight away okay. i actually i went to china and um and i had like three years out and then ended up going to do uh, politics at soas and you know in london but the the that sort of schooling in retrospect i think in many ways sort of spurred me on to to be the exact opposite of that which is to look at the world as it is today rather than look at the world um as the institution would prefer it to be so and that, so that's what gives you your ability to look outside the box i guess today as a futurologist yeah i mean it's a, it's not so much an ability so much i don't i don't know if it's an ability or just a, a habit or a daily practice or something i think it's just something that i've develop the skills and the habits to do but it's um but it's it's an extremely important thing to to try to approach the the world every day um sort of completely freshly uh you know i i'm i'm a, a 
a practicing Zen Buddhist and, and, and I have a Zen teacher and, and all of those sorts of things. And part of the Zen tradition is the phrase called beginner's mind, which is the sort of idea of approaching every new thing as if you were seeing it for the first time and, and not carrying with you stories and concepts um, from the past. And that's, that's a, I don't think it's a thing that's actually possible, but it's a thing to strive towards and it's a thing to be conscious of, a thing to be mindful of. And when you do that, when you, when you sort of see things as if you're seeing them for the first time, it enables you to see through the, to use a slightly religious term, to see through the delusions that people have about um, about their industry or delusions they have about their own organization, which is which in turn is then very useful for somebody like me as a consultant to, to, to point out to them and to say, hey, that thing that you think is self-evident and true um, isn't self-evident and true. Uh, the world has changed actually since you know since you first recognized that thing. And that that is really the service. Um, the most useful service that I offer is is really showing people that the the system that they think is true is no longer true. Um, yeah, and I can see that. Um, so, okay, so I, I, I just I I've got so many questions in my head, but I've got to wait for them because uh, I just want to guide people through to this. Um, okay, so LGS, you you went to China. Very exciting. That must have been. I have to say, I yes. I cycled from where was it? Uh, Hong Kong to Beijing once, which was just a, a nice, yeah, three three months. I, I, I say what I cycled it once. I wouldn't want to do it twice, but it was lovely. Yeah. It was lovely. Um, so, how did you get into journalism then? What 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 took you down the road of journalism? Well, because it's a particularly entertaining pro, uh, profession for somebody who doesn't want to have a real job. I mean, okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about uh, journalism, and certainly the journalism at the time was that there was a certain place within the industry for um, like people who are weird. And, and this, it's, I, I, joined the industry, I joined the profession right at the tail end of, um, right at the tail end of uh, the sort of old, the old industry, where there was this long tradition of, of newspapers having correspondents who were yeah like I say sort of professionally a little bit odd who's who were you know good observers of the universe because they were working through the universe as if they were aliens you know? yeah uh, and be able to write about it and and so I was very fortunate that I sort of fell into the realization that I could go and have adventures as it were um, whether those were sort of physical adventures, I did lots of war correspondence and, and foreign correspondence, or in sort of intellectual adventures in terms of, so for example, as a technology correspondent, writing about the birth of the internet and trying to explain, or the birth of the web, and trying to explain what was going on to the readers of The Times or the readers of The Guardian, which in 1997, 98, 99, was extremely difficult. Um, intellectually so it was a it was one of those sort of great careers to choose for somebody who was 
um, like he, he was fidgets a lot um, mentally and physically, and so right. it, it was it was a good it was an extremely good fit. Uh, I, I'm not good with office jobs at all, uh, whereas being a journalist is sort of halfway between the two. Okay, so fast forward today to journalism, um, and is 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 there a role left for journalists i mean uh, is isn't everyone a journalist isn't everyone a blogger isn't everyone a video podcast no. or a, you know so yeah i i i'm 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 setting you up for the answer but obviously <laughs> um, and, sure. and you know aren't we also uh under a deluge of fake news so what role does journalism have left to play really in this mo- in this mess that we have as a world yeah, I mean, I think those two questions really are, are sort of illustrative of each other, which is that, yes, the capabilities, this really brings us back to the, to the original thing about Uber and Airbnb as well, which is the thing that, that um, people got very animated about as, as journalism and as media was transformed in the 2000s was the fact that, you know, everybody in the world today has, well, you know, everybody in the in the industrialized world today has a device in their pocket which can take high definition video and can take photographs and then can send those photographs and publish them immediately and all of those sorts of things. And so you had this realization that the physical capabilities were there for everybody to do journalism. So for sure, before digital technologies, to be a journalist, you required to be, you required access to the tools. You required access to a printing press. You required access to the cameras, to the TV cameras, to all those sorts of things. And those tools were limited in number. They were very expensive. Freedom of the press only belonged to people who had presses, right? And to have a press uh, would cost you a lot of cash. And so there was a hierarchy and there was a method of getting to be one of the people who had access to what was printed. And then that really died after about 2001 as blogging was invented and as the web became a big deal and then digital cameras became good in say 2007, 2008 uh, when the iPhone was released and, and suddenly everybody has, has the ability to, the, the thing that was restraining people as in the access to tools went away and there became this conversation about surely everybody is a journalist and everybody is a photographer and what's the place for professionals? And what we've learned over the, the subsequent ten years is that if you get rid of access, if you get rid of the of the tools, as access to the tools being the gatekeeper, then what you're left with is access to talent. Is the thing that's the difficult job, and or is the is the thing that prevents everybody from being journalists. And so, what prevents everybody from being journalists, or what? the future of journalism is, is people doing journalism, which is, uh, you know, reporting fairly and accurately and doing investigations and all of these things which are extremely difficult to do, which is not to confuse, not to be confused with just the ability to publish something. And the ability to publish something is widely, extremely widespread and that's what enables fake news and so on to, to come into existence but the future of journalism is based around people who can do actual journalism in the in the classic sense of like reporting accurately on what is actually happening in the world um, and there's always going to be a need for that and even in fact 
I would say in today's world, in a greater need than there has been before because of the proliferation of, of stories which aren't true. Um, whether, whether those stories are maliciously propagated or they are propagated through some sense of um, social goodwill, like for example, anti-vaccine stuff, the vast majority of which is propagated by people who think they're doing the correct thing. You know, they're not, but, but they, they're not doing it to be evil. They, they, it's just that the effects that it has are extremely bad. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you have like state-on-state information warfare, which we're seeing an awful lot of at the moment too. Yeah, I mean, one one of the problems I think we have is that uh, they were saying eighty percent of, let's say, sub twenty-five-year-olds get their news from Snapchat, Facebook, or, or other mechanisms, which aren't journalistic and aren't regulated in any sense so um it is a worrying trend and and that's the problem we i think i'm just curious one of the trends i'm i'm beginning to see um and i'd love your thoughts on it is um Mm. a flight to quality a flight to payment a flight to um where people are beginning to pay you know micro payments still you know five pound a month maybe so i pay for medium to get some of the extra quality i pay for um various other services like I, i'll pay to get the ft online and i'll pay for other things because i believe the quality of the content's worth paying for um do you think that's going to be one way so that we can get away from this i guess fake news problem and and the everyone's a journalist problem and maybe we will get back eventually to maybe not the printing press barons, but maybe a way of having quality within certain sites. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Sure, are you seeing sure. the same thing even? Yes. I mean, definitely. There's definitely a flight to quality to the, to the idea to pay for good stuff. And, and that's, that's definitely the case. And it's the case, it's the case really in, in every part of the, of the internet, whether you're talking about sexual news or whether you're talking about, you know, television and movies, um, people would much rather pay, you know, 10 bucks a month for Netflix than, you know, watch stuff on YouTube, for example, uh, or HBO or, or Disney Plus or any of these things. Um, so for sure, there's definitely a, a cultural movement towards people paying for content. And, and if you're paying for content, then and, and news is an important thing for you, then paying for news does give you, you know, premium, premium quality news, the premium experience. I think the issue is more complex though, in that for many people, if not perhaps the majority of people, news isn't that important. And in fact, interestingly, for many people, if not the majority of people, news is not that important, not, not in a sort of slack way, not in a sort of like, oh, I can't be bothered to read the newspaper way, but in the fact that actually in their day-to-day lives, in their relationships with other people, in the quality of their social interactions, in, their, in every bit of their lives, an in-depth understanding of, I don't know, European trade policy is not nearly as useful as an in-depth understanding of what the Kardashians did last week. Yeah. Right. In the, yeah. In the, in the, from a day, and, and that's not a value judgment in any way. It's just a, it's just a recognition that, that, you know, 
when people say, "Ah, oh, you know, kids under the age of twenty get most of them get most of their quotes news from social media," or, or "Kids under the age of twenty aren't reading the broad street newspapers anymore; they they'd rather look at funny videos on TikTok." Yeah. Well, you know what? I'd rather watch funny videos on TikTok. TikTok's amazing, um, but I but I don't spend my entire day, although I could quite easily. Um, I don't spend my entire day looking at TikTok. I do go and read, you know, quite a lot of newspapers. But the reason I read a lot of newspapers is because the knowledge that I get from it is actionable and useful and important to my life. Whereas if my day was spent interacting with, you know, my peer group, all of whom also spent a lot of time on TikTok, then looking at TikTok would be actually a better use of my time and perfectly rational and actually um, admirable in many ways because the shared cultural experience and the, and the social bonding and the joy and the community and, the, and all of that sort of stuff that comes from a shared cultural experience is way more important, I would posit, than like uh, some form of like super nerdy understanding of the current state of the you know the european the european commission a sense a, you know a, you know ascendancy process uh of who's going to be the uk commissioner when the new commission comes in in january or something like that like it's not ignorance it's actually just appropriateness and but but when that comes but what you have is when that gets to an extreme you have something that reminds me of um sort of scientific progress which is that you have for example um newtonian physics which is good enough at certain human scales but is wrong but is good enough right and so if all you need to do is put a shelf on a wall understanding of newtonian physics is probably overkill Whereas if you want to put a robot onto Mars, you've got to understand Einsteinian physics, which is much more complicated, but, is not, but will work at that level, whereas Newtonian physics wouldn't have. And to sort of extend that analogy, as the world gets more and more complex uh, and, and certainly weirder, we end up with this weird political inequality where the world is run and the value is extracted from the world by people who are um, deeply educated about how the world is operating. And they, they become separate, they almost become a separate species from um, people who, for whom their society doesn't require that deep knowledge. And so I can certainly see a situation in say 20 or 30 years time and in many ways we have it today in some parts of america where everything from your quality of life to your uh, moral outlook to your personal health to to everything about your existence is utterly different depending on um the media that you take in and where and and the mental model you have of the universe um, that is created by that media and so so there is so it, i think to sort of although i'm rambling about this i think the point being that we have to be 
we have to understand why people do or don't read the news or why people prefer fake news to objective truth or anything like that and the reason is because it's useful for them it's 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 actually a it's actually a positive choice it's not ignorance it's actually it's entirely it's more useful for them in within their context whereas for me as a you know as an international consultant who lives in new york reading the financial times um and you know learning journals is much more useful for me than knowing um you know what kim and kanye have done in the past few days yeah no I, but it doesn't it doesn't mean there's any better or worse but but the but the end game of that is that i get to be in charge <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you just opened up a can of questions um so first one is obviously i i get tiktok is it's a form of entertainment at the end of the day what I, i've got two teenage children and you know watching them they never watch mainstream tv that they're, they're always binge watching or they're they're on snapchat or youtube so for them it's a totally different way of consuming content and having an entertaining world. the one that you and i probably had which was much more right, right. cinema based and i think you, i think you have to, exactly and i think you have to be very careful about using the phrase mainstream now yeah um, what, what is mainstream? I, I don't think I, right what is mainstream i think certainly in the uk if you look at the viewer figures uh you know terrestrial linear television is not really mainstream terrestrial linear terrestrial linear television is kind of a kink of old people yes it's like a, and, it's like a weird thing that middle-aged people do yeah and, and it's diminishing actually the the uh, the raja figures for tv are showing that the in, the number of people watching tv is diminishing rapidly and they go into more of the um netflix apple uh plus amazon prime right. types and binge right. watching and, that, and that's and that's because the linear television audience is dying right? yeah I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not, it's not even necessarily a choice. It's, it's, it's literally that, that it was mainstream to a generation who are now getting to the point where they are statistic, statistically speaking, like dropping dead. And so again, it's a, it's a mental model thing of people go, well, mainstream media. And you're like, well, what's mainstream media? I mean, just look at Sunday papers. There isn't a single Sunday paper now that sells over a million copies in the UK. Yeah. And when, when we were teenagers, like, like the news, you know, news of the world sold like 3 million copies. Um, and, you know, the Sunday Times was like an inch thick. And it was a major thing to be, you know, the Sunday Times Insight team was a culturally creating investigative unit. And whereas today, who cares, right? Whereas BuzzFeed, right, their investigative unit is award-winning. It's, yeah. it's just it's just the world has changed and, and you have to be really careful about how we posit our theories about it. so what, one of the things i want to get ask you now is is are we creating a two-step three-step four-step world and let me try and explain that so if we're seeing a flight to quality and to payment of quality so i can afford to pay for three or four different tv subscriptions i can afford to pay for um medium and ft and, and various other services i want um mm. but the internet or the original internet was born on the idea of it was free for everyone a bit like an nhs really it was free for right. everyone uh, and it was ad supported and therefore, there wasn't a two-step internet or a three-step internet. We all got the same stuff. So if I wanted to go to Facebook or Twitter, so could you, so could everybody else. But 
now if i want to go to the ft i have to pay whereas many other people won't pay so now i've got either because of my financial situation access to more information than they have so what i'm trying to say say is i'm seeing this uh the not the death because i don't think it will be but the 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 uh ad supported internet is beginning to become only available to those who can't afford it and the quality of information so for example spotify or amazon music is mm-hmm. ad supported at the bottom but it's such a poor experience so are we going to see um more and more quality moving away and people that you know rubbish end of the internet just being no offense to tiktok or snapchat but just that free model where it's just crappy kardashian videos and no quality uh and intellectually not very um engaging i don't 100%. know so, yeah no absolutely and I, I, well yes but the, i think that's in many ways has been has always been the case um you know that there's there's a real difference between the internet experience that you might have or the technology experience that you might have as a you know relatively well-off ad blocking using uh apple product using um subscription paying for person who understands the user interface who knows how to use google uh etc etc the sort of internet experience that that person has and a uh you know feature phone using or like a like an old android using spyware and adware riddled windows old windows pc using um person who's a bit confused by whatever everything is who doesn't run an ad blocker who doesn't have spam filtering who doesn't have antivirus software and who's internet experience is made entirely of pop-ups and spyware and porn um, <laughs> being sent to them into their inbox and that difference in experience has been around since at least the late 90s you know for sure you know even even 1998-99 people were having this conversation just going there are two internets there's the internet that you have if you know what you're doing and there's the internet, the internet that everybody else has and yes more and more people know what they're doing uh, because it's been around for a long time but but i think i think the internet that's being paid for is being so i'm not expecting to find a porn advert for example on the ft or i'm not expecting to be spammed by their newsletter or i'm not so what i'm trying to say is that world may have existed where those that are technically savvy could clear out and put ad blockers and filter stuff out but now i'm actually i've got to the point where actually it's just a pain in the backside to keep doing this sod it i'm just going to pay someone else to do it now go and go and clear out all the crud give me the quality uh, and make my my world nicer but what i'm trying to say is we're now creating a two-step world or maybe a a three-step world um going back to that horrible you know we used to call it the third world didn't we you know in the old days sure. the first world the second world and the third world i just wonder whether now the internet because we hear russia fragmenting the internet iran was offline for six days because they didn't want them to access um sure. what was that 
uh, it wasn't YouTube, it was another service. Um, you know, and so we're seeing governments starting to fragment the internet, China famously with its Chinese firewall. Yeah, the, the, and the British government was trying to do it too. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. You, you, but you have both balkanized internet in that way that different countries have decided that there are certain types of content that their citizens don't get to have free access to. And like I say, the British government, until they abandoned it a few weeks ago, they had a very strong policy and process to um, basically, if you wanted to watch any form of pornographic material on the internet in the UK, you would have had to have gone to the post office of like the local corner shop and bought a porn license. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Which was, which was uh, you know, hilarious, but it, but it definitely shows the direction of travel for, for certain, you know, the direction of philosophical travel for certain people within the government. That was even a thing that was contemplatable, but I, your point about is there a two, is there a sort of a, a sort of are there sort of two internets? Um, yes, uh, but there always has been. Um, whether it's getting worse or not, I don't know. But it might be being more significant in that previously, you know, if in if in the year two thousand, you the difference was between people who had an amazing internet experience and people who had a terrible internet experience, both groups were still very privileged in the fact that they were people who were having an internet experience in the year 2000. What you have today, though, of course, is that you have people who have an amazingly clean and pristine, ad-free, blah, 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 sort of internet experience, and then you have everybody else. But there is no optional, there is no option of not using the internet, right? It, it, it's, it would be incredibly difficult, I think, to be truly operable in, at least in urban environments in the developed world, and certainly with kids, it would be very, very difficult to do so to the full extent of societal possibility uh, without being online in some way, without having a phone or, or a, you know, internet connected device in some, of some type. It would be very, very difficult. I mean, people do, of course, people do it, and, and there will be listeners to this right now, well, not listeners to this, because of course they'll be listening to it on a, on a device, but, but there'll be people who will be like, well, you know, I can perfectly get, a, get a, away with not being, on, not being online in the year 2019, 2020. But in reality, it's, it's not really optional. Um, it's very, very difficult to operate solely on paper these days. And so you do have this thing of you can't if you can't opt out of it and you also can't afford for it to be good, then by definition your life is going to suck. Um, yeah, and that's I, that's a big thing. And I, I think the, the the bigger worry is continuing this thing of you know the internet being uh, fragmented. Five um, G when it comes out finally, or when it's you know in the iPhone in the next generation iPhone. You know, mm. that's a, a twelve thousand. No, sorry, a twelve hundred pound phone. So, how many people are going to afford a twelve hundred pound five G phone? You know, so mm. suddenly, most people who are on five G will have been affluent, well off. Again, the type of person who is in the one percenter, if you want to sort of target it that way, or the ten percent, um, and everyone else, you know, who can't afford to upgrade their phone from. You know the existing iphone 11s or even 8s or 7s or or worse you know um right. will not play in the 5g world again so i'm just i'm just saying because uh, yuri naval famously in his book homo deus talks about the great unwanted 
and the idea that I, I'm just trying to, as a futurologist, bringing it back to your world, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know, are we looking at a world going forward in which, you know, there will be the haves, the have nots, the, because of money again, because ad free, uh, you know, ad free, sorry, ad supported free content is gone. You know, subsidies on mobile phones have gone. Um, so we are seeing this, this world, I think evolving uh, into a world where, the intellectually smart, the wealthy off, and the, um, you know, are going to separate themselves out. Is, is this, am I, am I just, you know, no, reading, I, I, reading I no, I, th- I think you're really just, you're basically just describing the modern world as it is today. For sure. Okay. Uh, so what's... You know, that, <laughs> like, like, like that, is, that is absolutely already the case. Right. Um, you only, I mean, whether, whether you're talking about the difference between somebody who lives in, you know, somebody who lives in Islington and somebody who lives in Grimsby, or the difference between somebody who lives in Brooklyn and somebody who lives in a small town in the middle of Tennessee, or or, yeah. or, a, or a small village in the middle of Tennessee. They're completely the, the gaps there already. You say, yeah, the gap, the gap, the gap is enormous, and not only is the gap enormous, but but the social effects of that are why you have why you have the you know, the two major political upsets in the, in the Western world of the past few years, which is you know, the election of Trump and, and the Brexit referendum. Yeah. Which is, which is those, both of those political events are really symptoms of that increasing inequality. And it's not just financial inequality, it's cognitive inequality as well. So a, a huge amount of my work at the moment in terms of real future-facing stuff is around this, the idea of cognitive security, which is the protection of the of your ability to think clearly about the world, um, because if you're the, if you are a person who has a genuine understanding of how the world operates, what is available to you, what is coming down the line in terms of social change, what it, how politics works, what the markets are doing, all those things. If you have an understand, if you're in, if you're both educated but also up to date in your mental models of how you understand new facts, then you have such a different understanding of the world compared to people who are living, effectively living in the past, um, not just in terms of the technology that they have, but in terms of their view, view of how the world operates and all of that sort of thing, that is so fundamentally different and so fundamentally alienating between the two that you that you can almost start to talk about them as two different i mean species is a bit is pushing it but but you only have to look at the difference in life expectancy the difference in um body composition the difference in uh morbidity and uh, mortality in terms of life expectancy but also morbidity in terms of quality of life into old age you start to see that that the the population that you're talking about the people who can't afford the new phone um they're just different in almost every way uh, increasing maybe not so much in the uk because of the because of the presence of the national health service and social security and things like that but in but in the us it's a radically different thing and and you have a completely different outlook 
on the universe and a completely different understanding of the universe between between a you know highly paid uh, you know highly paid international consultant who lives in Brooklyn and somebody of of my age who uh, works in white industry in in you know rural Virginia or, or, or rural Georgia. Uh, that person will probably die 20 years before I do, etc., etc., etc. And okay, so it's, yeah. it's a very different thing. Okay, so we, you, you talked about Brexit and you talked about the Trump election. Um, the Greeks who famously invented democracy uh, in Demos actually mm. didn't allow people to vote. They, the, the, the vote was actually only allowed by the Senate, the nobility, uh, and the military. Um, they famously didn't give the vote to the people, which is where democracy, or what we think of as democracy today, is actually sure. uh, a falsehood. Um, and the problem sure. we've got, I guess, therefore, is while we do have democracy where it's one person, one vote, and, and I wish it stays that same, so I'm not trying to say it should change. Um, right. we, we will, if this gap is cognitive gap as you call it now um or as you're in eval calls the great unwanted eventually not even the unemployed um mm. how are we going to bridge this because um we will get the 10 percent being outnumbered by the 90 percent or the 20 percent by the 80 percent constantly if it's one person one vote and therefore the fake news that they read because they only get poor quality content will mean that you know they won't uh you know do the mmr injection because that's the only information they're f being fed or trump can control them because they're only watching fox news which is the lowest form of life um right and, and so how do we how do we bridge this cognitive gap that's for my minor observation seems to be getting wider and faster and and bigger apart um and it, well, it, you, I think I think the, the the point is is that you have to you have to um, you can't do it by lecturing them. You ha you have to do it by giving by by giving them hot care, right? You have to do it by making sure that they have jobs. But you have to do it by by raising their standard of living so that so that so that they so that the the sort of the, the decisions that they make. Um, or their lifestyles, or whatever, are at, are at, this, at a similar level. I mean, this is the, the danger with democracy, as you, as you pointed out, is that if you have a majority, if you have a, if you have a, effectively an underclass who are politically uh, equally as empowered as the, as, as the others, then and the, the underclass is in the numeric majority, then they get to be in charge. That's, yeah. They get to elect their president. They get to they get to vote in whichever way in the referendum or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and so, if you are if you are in the privileged position of being in the top, you know, being in the ten percent or being in the one percent or being not point not one percent, and you don't want your entire society to go in the direction of go in the other direction, then it's incumbent upon you to pull more people onto your side, and, that, and not to do so by arguing your intellectual point, but just like giving them food like giving them jobs like it's not a it, it's it has it, it it has to be done through rising the tide rather than by saying well you're just all over um and and we should we're, we're going to 
you know, filter bad news or something like that. You, 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 sh- you need to take those people, you need, you need to give those people a reason to read the good news. And, and at the moment, you don't have a reason to read the good news if your life sucks anyway. Right? Yeah. What, what's the point? Why, why, why would you care about Russian interference in an election if that's not socially useful for you to understand and you can't, you can't influence it in any way and so on and so on? Whereas knowing, you know, knowing the latest gossip about a particular singer or, or something like that is actually socially useful for you because it's a conversation you're going to have with your co-workers when you go to work the next morning. And so, you know, it, it's more a matter of, of, of making these things relevant. There are some, there are some, I would say there are some exemptions to that rule, which is that there are some things which I think should just be enforced simply for the common good, vaccinations being one of them. But but in terms of news consumption, there's an awful lot of hand-wringing about how do we get, you know, basically how do we get poor people to read the Times? And, you, yeah, and, well, the, reason, and the way you do it is you make them not poor anymore. And then they will. Yeah, well, then we, then we, then we end up in the uh, discussion. So, uh, well, the discussion is around universal basic income. How, you know, do you pay them? Because there isn't the jobs out there, you know. So... You know, um, people aren't taking the, the education that's been offered to them. They're rejecting it along the way or, or, the, or the circumstances they live in doesn't allow them to take advantage of the education. So they end up in a, a poorer state, even though they have an opportunity. Um, and so you end up with people who are in blue collar work or, or, or lower end white collar work, which I know you talk about a lot now with AI replacing jobs mm. and robots um and it's just a natural evolution i got on a train this morning i parked a car there was no car park attendant i did it with a machine through my phone i got onto a train very similar the train's mm. got a driver only because there's a union but it isn't factually needed and um, there's certainly no guard and i got out of the train through a ticket barrier so along that line the blue collar work was being replaced and that's not even ai that's just just you know mechanization um so if if we're going to start to see, you know, we talked about narrow AI, we haven't even got to general AI or super AI. Um, mm. you know, and, and I know you famously have a robot that follows you and your daughter to the shops and school. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so, you know, if robots are going to start to do things and we've got AI coming in and again, trying to understand what do we do with the social inequity gap, the cognitive gap, the, the internet splintering or splinternet as some people call it. So, so I think, I think the assumptions you're, I think you're making a, an assumption, which is, which is very common, which is that, Oh, I'm stuck in my framework. Come on, break me out of it. Well, yeah. I mean, so basically, <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, to put it that way, but, but basically yes. In yes. That, okay. In that, in that, people when people are discussing about the whole, there are these AIs or digital systems or whatever, which are going to, which are replacing people, and therefore those people are, as you know, as Ferrari says, you know, the, the great, uh, the great unwanted, or, or or however you want to put it. Um, that sort of that entirely presupposes that the wider system. Of society doesn't change right 
So that totally presupposes that the whole point of society is to service, for example, the, the profit motivation. And so you just so because because at some point in the argument is the assumption that is 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 effectively the throwing throwing the hands up in the air and just going, and and therefore those people that's it for those people because there's no other way of this of society operating, and that's just not the case. It's just not true. Um, it's not true for a couple of reasons. One, it's just not true because because um, there are alternatives. But secondly. Those people aren't dead. And so they will do something. They will do things. And the, what they do then becomes culture and then becomes society. And so society will naturally transform simply due to the, the behavior of the people within it. And so, and so what we're really talking about is how do we stop the guillotine, right? The, the, the actual conversation here is given the fact that all of these people aren't going to be dead, but will be put out of work by the system as it stands today. An awful lot of those conversations are, how do we stop them rising up and killing us? And, yeah. And so, so the, and so the, the, but that as well assumes that the system is on, is, is like, that's the, the, the capitalist system, for example, is the, is the, is the unmovable object in the middle around which, all, around which all behavior sort of adheres to its rules and therefore it's inevitable that this is going to happen and therefore it's inevitable that they will like you know these things and but the inevitable bit of it is based on an assumption that the system doesn't change whereas you could you can think about other alternatives so another alternative would be to say um ai is pretty limited in the things that it can do and so you have you have digitization, so like you say, the, t the ticket barriers and all those sorts of things. And that's been around for a very long time. Um, and, and we're starting to see, you, you're right, that, that, that has replaced a certain type of job. Now those jobs were terrible in the first place. Um, but those people, those jobs, have, those jobs have in general gone. And the people who would have done those jobs are now doing other things. And the same thing with AI. And the majority of AI job replacements from by AI are replacing. Yes, they're white collar work. It's white collar, highly paid work, but it's white collar, highly paid work, which is only highly paid because it requires a, a slightly higher skill set in terms of dealing with data, things like bookkeeping. But people who are bookkeepers don't have to be bookkeepers it's not like you're born into the bookkeeper caste and if they're and if they are relieved of bookkeeping they could be doing something else and so the quest is to find the things that those people could be doing which would add more to society whilst the machines are doing the bookkeeping and so you, one could think of this as actually the, the possibility of this isn't a death spiral of capitalism but instead think of it as a blossoming of another form of society where all of the bookkeepers who are currently bookkeepers but actually really wanted to be cake bakers or poets or ballet dancers or um, some other thing or TikTok video makers or whatever it is, right? Some other thing that adds to the general flourishing and richness of the world 
and to the, or to the flourishing in the individual cultural richness of every person in the country. Relieved of the, relieved of the tyranny of having to be bookkeepers, um, they can, they can uh, find a place in, in a new society where they're able to do much, much better stuff. Yeah. And, and that, that to me is, is a much more interesting and much more hopeful narrative than going, than going, well, the overriding force in society is the profit motive and the profit motive says that these people will be replaced by machines because the machines are cheaper and therefore those people are going to be, you know, rendered like, like human, like sort of like firewood or something. We'll just have, we'll have all the people who used to be bookkeepers and we're just going to have to like stack them like firewood somewhere and like hope that hopefully they won't, hopefully they won't complain too much, but we really don't have anything to, we don't have anything for them to do. And it's just not the case because at every time there's been a new, every time there's been a, a, a radical transformation in society because of a new capability has come along, then the people who used to do the old jobs went on to do other things. And we've seen this many, many times before. Like the invention of the motor car, for example, destroyed a whole set of occupations and industries. Um, you know, London went from being entirely horse-based to be not horse-based in like 30 years, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And which means that all of the blacksmiths, all of the saddle makers, all of the people who used to shovel horse shit out of the street, right? All of those people, no longer needed. They didn't go away and die. They found other things to do. Um, and, yeah, I, and so it's the other things that they developed, which are the, and so because we know this, because we know the way that works, the, the sort of social imperative is to, is to accelerate that. Now, yes, of oh. course, they, those people might be like, I've always been a shit shoveler. I'm always, I'm going to be a shit shoveler for the rest of my life. And like, so will my son. And they're being, they are being wrong as well in the, there isn't any shit to shovel anymore, so you're gonna to have to find something else to do. But we have to help them, um, not yeah. just for their good, but for our good too. Yeah. Well, no. I so I mean, I, I you know, just to end on a few points. I mean, I fully agree with you. Actually, as it comes down to it, Ben, we have to do more for it. So, anyway, I'm I'm looking around and trying to find what is politics 2.0. You know, the current model of politics where we send someone to Parliament once every five years and they don't listen to us until they need our vote um, is is a broken mm. model. And and looking at the hung Parliament we're about to get, uh, and and the mm. the myopic uh, Groundhog Day Brexit. Uh, that we're we're suffering uh, will continue, right. um, but there is no new economic. Sorry, there's new no new political model appearing that says radical change needs to happen, and there's no technology being used around it. Um, so maybe it'll be in ten years or twenty years time. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure that it's anything to do with the political the structure of the political system. Actually, okay. I don't. I don't think that it's anything to do with the way that MPs are elected or the way that people vote or the way that, you know, party politics occurs. Because those systems did evolve for very good reasons. It is similar to your observation about the Greeks sort of not giving everybody the vote. Yeah. In that we don't have, a, we don't actually have, in the UK and the US as well, it's not a democracy, it's a representative democracy. You, you elect your representatives and then the representatives vote. 
and then only um, that's why you don't have that's why there aren't continual referenda and and it's why referenda are generally uh, huge upheavals because because the public in general is is insane or the public as a collective is, is always insane whereas the representatives the the perfect you know the, the the idea of a representative body is that it takes away the insanity now the issue that we have in the uk isn't so much the structural thing in terms of how people vote, you know the, the parliament how the parliament operates and how people vote and so that the issue is that the uk as a culture up and down society is entirely delusional it's massively delusional if you look at all of the arguments around Brexit and all of the arguments around the, the current election, every party, whether it's the Conservatives or Labour or whoever it is, from every bit of the political spectrum, the stories they're telling, the, uh, the stories they're, t they're telling about their aspirations and the criticisms they're making about the other party's policies are profoundly disconnected from the actual way the world is and and the brexit referendum is a very good example of that if you if you look at all of the policies of the, the hardcore pro brexiteers their worldview whether you agree with whether you agree with them in theory or not their worldview of britain's place in the world of other people's perception of the uk of what a trade treaty is and how long it takes to negotiate one all of those things are profoundly wrong they're just they're just not representative of reality in any way whatsoever and but they're not lying because they genuine because that is their genuine perception of the world it's, so they're not being deceitful it's just that the, the where they stand in terms of where they're deriving their policies from is is wrong, and it's the same thing for the mainstream parties as well. If you were to say to any to any non to any sort of non political person internationally, like what are the biggest challenges in the world today? Like what is what are the biggest challenges that a, that a, that a Western industrial economy? faces of the next 20 years and it would be a completely different set of things that are being than, than the, those that are being addressed by any of the manifestos that have been released in the past few days right yeah different sort of things and it, and this is because whereas if you were to say to those same experts pretend that you are a uh, a, a somebody who is cosplaying colonial victorian britain Right. And now tell me what are the biggest things that are, you know, what, that are most important to your government, then you would probably come up with the Conservative Manifesto. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, so it's, 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 a, it's not, a, it's a matter of, um, it's not that MPs are broken or Parliament's broken or that we should be able to vote via our phones or anything like that. It's just that what we're voting for is insane, right? It's like, it's like voting who is the, you know, it's basically the election is like saying who is better you know what's better star wars or star trek and you're like yeah. well neither are real <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like it doesn't matter like you can have really strong opinions 
you know, who would win in the fight, Batman or Superman? And you can, we could debate that for hours. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because neither of those things are real and climate change is, you know? That's yeah. the issue, right? Um, and so it's not about how do you vote. It's about the fact that the people who are in the political system at the moment and the general cultural conversation in the UK is profoundly weird. I mean, it's in a, in a World War II obsessed, totally not come, in, come to terms with its colonial past, like madness. And, and But what's really interesting about the UK, I think, is that that reckoning, that, that readjustment of worldview is about to happen. It's about to happen really hard. It's going to, happen, it's going to cause a lot of suffering. But it's going to be really interesting to see what the country is like in 20 years' time when it's gone through that process that some of the other countries did uh, earlier last century when, when they you know, went through the process of, of decolonialization and, and re -under, you know, reassessing their position in the world um, that the UK never has for all sorts of interesting um, cultural reasons. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with anything you said. I mean, you know, the North having lost all of its industries, you know, for them staying in the EU was the same rubbish that they were going to get that they've currently got. So why not throw the grenade in and, you know, right. vote no and get leave? Same with, you know, the Trump voters. And it goes back to a couple of things, you know, you've mentioned, you know, their framework of the world is very different. And so, that, you know, the empire and wasn't it so great in World War Two when we won the war and it, Britain was had less coloured people and it was great. That that was our world. That was our framework. That's that's the world we want. So let's go back to that and let's get out of this EU mess. And you can see, you know, why people might vote that way. Um, yeah. In the same in the same way that you know Trump, you know, make America great again. You know, we'll bring back the jobs. No, you won't. But, but I'll promise it. Now you'll vote for me, and then you know, sadly, you won't get them anyway. Um, and when you don't get them, you can, you can always blame the other people. Yes. Because the other thing about those delusions is that they were never true in the first place. And so, as an example, Britain didn't win the war. No, I right? know that. Yeah. Russia won the war, right? It was, it was it, like Russia and America won the war and Russia did most of it. And, yeah. and, and the same thing for like Make America Great Again is a, is a particularly... Um, sort of pernicious phrase in that it's in the the definition of great in that is make america white again right? yes yeah it's not which is what the, which is what hitler did he, he when when he said we'll make germany great again which is where it came from originally that was what he right. actually we'll get rid of the jews yeah exactly and that, and so it's so when you so it's 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 a very difficult, um, it's very easy to say uh, everything would be different if we just um, like filtered the way people read the news or everything would be different if we, um, if we got people to vote from their phones rather than going to the local primary school or those sorts of slightly cosmetic fixes. Instead, it has to be a much, it has to be a much deeper fix, which is fixing society in general and to do that, we need to, specifically in the UK, really do need to look very deeply, keep asking why about every social structure 
and when you start and, and get back to its origins and when you get back to its origins it's almost always a false story or a false understanding of Britain's place in the world which and and the inability of the wider culture to sort of address it um, and you see this you see this all the time you see even even season like football right every time there's a world cup there's this continual thing of like oh you know this is like football's coming home you know this is you know this oh, is yeah, yeah. it's gonna go there and of course they're like the ninth best team in the world right they're like sure you're gonna get to the quarterfinals or the semis even and then you're gonna lose on penalties right yeah and that's not because that's not because they were robbed it's just because they're not as good as the people who get to the final yeah. and and the inability to go this World Cup's going to be great. It'll be amazing if we get out of the group stage because we're not that great. <laughs> is something that, that the is culturally unacceptable in the UK, but it's actually very necessary because once you can get through that sort of thing, once people can start saying, you know, the the uh, you know the the colonization of India was mostly bad, without mentioning the railways. Um, for example. Oh no! Yeah, the railways weren't good either. By the way, don't that was well, just to get the well, stuff out of the country quicker. That was the real that's reason. Right, that's right. The railways. Exactly. Exactly. Well, precisely. Right. Um, and so once once people start understanding that, or understanding the, the the triangular trade, right? Why are there such amazing civic buildings in Liverpool? Like, who paid for those? Well, yeah. it, it's, it's slave money, right? It's like, you know, Etc. 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 Once you can, people actually can look at things like open-eyed and understandingly, then the country can move on and start to address. But that goes back know, to our school. Uh, that goes back to the school exactly conversation that. we had. You know, exactly. the school was designed for Victorian Empire Britain to yes. produce, as you said, soldiers or engineers or, or, or civil servants. And we haven't really moved that on. And we don't teach the history. There's a great book called The Inglorious Empire, um, at right, which I highly right. recommend. And it just right. opens your eyes to everything, you know, from the concentration camps that were created in the Boer War to the Blacken towns in Ireland. I mean, the list goes on. But we never, yeah, ever, I never got... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I never got taught that at school. You know, I remember sitting in our history class and it was all about how great Dunkirk was or or whatever it right. makes it, you know, and, and, and you end up, you come out and that's therefore your belief system, your framework, as you call it. And, um, and it's not going to change because we're not changing the fundamental underlying educational system. That still isn't changed. You know, my children no, and, and, that, that's, that's entirely right. And when you, and when people have discussed this, it's, and, and it has been in the, in the public discourse recently, um, then there's a huge pushback against it because it's called um, political correctness or it's called yeah. multiculturalism or something like that. And, and both in the UK and in the US, it's then criticized by politicians on the right for, you know, doing the country down or, or something like that, being disloyal. And, and that's extremely problematic because, now the reason they do it is because it's part of the ecosystem of what keeps them in power, but at one level, and also because it's very, very uncomfortable. Like, it's much, much, much nicer to think of um, 
the occupation of India as like a merchant ivory sort of film with like Helena Bonham Carter in it and and or to think of it as sort of you know Scottish engineers going to a place and giving them the railways and you know think of it as this sort of glorious exploration and blah 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 and yeah, um, then it is this exactly benefactors right as opposed to going well you know we went over there and killed an awful lot of people and stole all their stuff <laughs> and yeah. you only even have to, you don't even have to look at a lot of the arguments around things like even the Elgin marbles in the British Museum or well, back basically all of the British Museum you know the British Museum is just is a, a part a, as well as being a place of great scholarship and curation and preservation and all those things is also a building which is filled with stuff that we stole 100 and, you know 200 years ago. exactly right? exactly and and the two those two things can be true at the same time of course they can be totally true at the same time but but that's a reckoning that people need to have and to, to come to terms with in a way that a lot of other countries are further down the line of doing that. The Germans are very good at this, like the Dutch, the Danes, the, you know, the, the Spanish, the Belgians really good at this, right? They, they don't, I don't think there's anybody in Belgium who sort of, you know, who wants to, who wants the Belgian African empire to be reclaimed. Because if you're not, not into the history the Congo of the, anymore, yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and also because, because if you know anything about the history of the Congo, the Belgians in the Congo were not cool. Like, no, they were not. They, they, they did an awful lot of terrible things. And so you end up with a much more grown up country. And, and the UK hasn't had that yet, I don't think, in a way that's really sort of filtered through. Because yeah, well, it would cause a huge problem. But when civil servants cause the post-Brexit trade agreement, white paper empire 2.0 as its project name you knew that everything was wrong um ben <laughs> i think i think we could chat for hours thank you so much um it's been fascinating i mean just trying to understand you know all of this it, it all connects we know it all connects whether it's technology pol politics education society economics it's all connected right. um and I guess that's what you do. You connect all those pieces yeah. together for people and then try and give them a path forward, that, at least for each client that's slightly different. I guess that's what yes, you... Yes, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's where the, uh, that's what the sort of the skill, if I want to claim any, is exactly that, is to, is to try and find the path which, which is illuminating for the individual, for the individual person. But, but in general, I think, yeah, like, like you say, everything is connected and it's, and it's all not quite what you think. But when, but when you come to the realization of that, um, it's both painful, but also illuminating that, that you can go, ah, everything I thought up to this point has been wrong. Well, that sucks. Um, <laughs> but, but, but now I understand this, but now I understand the world in a way that makes a lot of other things more understandable too. Um, and that is then greatly advantageous. And so, so it's, so like I, you know, like I said earlier, having a better understanding of the world is always advantageous, even if it's uncomfortable. True. Now, um, we didn't even touch on, and, I, and we, I won't hold you up much longer, we didn't touch on four day working weeks, 
the Chinese social score, new forms of transport. I mean, the list goes on and on that we could talk about. Uh, we didn't talk hmm. about blockchain. We didn't talk about augmented reality. We didn't talk about uh, sustainable green futures. Um, look, I, I'd love to have you back maybe in the future, come back and we could talk about some of that. Um, but in the meantime, sure. where, where can people follow you, find you, uh, get hold of um, you? Have you got another book coming out? Anything? Uh, no, there's no... Uh, I haven't written one uh, in the past few years, but um, but I may well be writing one next year if I can uh, if I can persuade myself to. <laughs> but, in, but in general, gen I'm, I'm like sort of against the idea. Uh, in general, um, on a daily basis, I'm on, I'm on Twitter a lot at, at Ben Hammersley. Um, my tweets auto-delete, so you'll, you'll notice that there aren't that many of them because after a couple of days, they disappear. Um, it, Smart, I like that. Yeah, it's very important. Um, my website, benhammersley.com, there's always, there's always stuff on there. Lots of stuff appears on YouTube and things like that. And um, but yeah, basically just uh, follow me on, on Twitter and, and things will be announced. But uh, you know, as and when they happen. And uh, there's a TV series that I made for the BBC that's on some streaming services around the world. Uh, it was last last time I saw it, it was on Amazon Prime, but I think it's moving around at the moment. Um, before that was on Netflix. Uh, it's, it's, it's very curious. Uh, I have a column in the British Airways Business Class magazine. So if you're in the front of the plane in the BA flight, then you can read my. my I'm sorry, I, I mean I, that's not the gap I'm filling. I'm in the back end of the economy. Well, so. when, when you when you when you walk <laughs> onto the plane and you're going through business class, just steal a magazine. It's uh, okay, um, I will do that next time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and and in general, um, just sort of all over the place. But uh, uh, people can. I'm very. Uh, happy for people to, to be in contact on Twitter or there's a form on my website, whatever. And, and if anybody wants to have a conversation, then, then I'm, I'm extremely happy, especially if it's somebody who disagrees with me entirely. Can I just say there is a wonderful irony, though, about the man who invented the term podcast who doesn't actually have a podcast? Yeah, um, I do do a lot of stuff for Radio 4, but, uh, <laughs> but doing my own podcast is, is far too much work. Uh, I, I admire you greatly, but I, 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 but I don't envy you. <laughs> the, uh, the editing you're going to have to do in a few, in a few minutes. <laughs> well, look, thank you very much, Ben, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad we managed to connect. And uh, Thanks, good luck with your global traveling. Uh, I'll Wonderful. Try and do thank my, you so much. And I'll try and do my best to keep up with you. Take care, Ben. No Speak to you soon. Cheers. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.